Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Andrew Pekosh, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Pekosh has studied a great number of viruses in the laboratory, including influenza and SARS. In our discussion, he talks about the critical questions to answer about the novel coronavirus. Let's listen. Professor Pekos, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. So you are a virologist. Can you um, tell me what a virologist does? Sure. So in the simplest uh, definition is a virologist is someone who studies uh, viruses and how they replicate. Um, In my particular case, I've been very interested in viruses that cause respiratory disease. And so I've been working on influenza, SARS, and various other respiratory viruses, trying to understand how they get in and replicate in people and how they initiate the process of disease. So tell me a little bit about your laboratory. What do you do in a virus lab? So um, here at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, we have two laboratories. Um, We have a standard laboratory that allows us to work with viruses like influenza and rhinoviruses. Um, And then we also have a laboratory that um, is uh, more high containment, which allows us to work with viruses that are more of a serious threat to the human population, like the COVID-19 virus. So the COVID-19 virus, which is also known as the novel coronavirus, is the one that's in the news. And um, you hear about a new virus. Um, what are the kinds of things that immediately start running through your mind as a virologist? Well, first, um, you know, the jump that a virus has to make from replicating in animals to replicating in humans turns out to be a rather significant one. So when I hear about a virus like COVID-19, that has made the jump to humans and seems to be pretty efficient at spreading from person to person, and it also seems fairly efficient at causing disease, all that makes me wonder, what is it about this virus that's different from all the other viruses that are out there that can't make that jump? And um, what are the factors that the virus has somehow found a way to overcome to become more efficient at causing human disease? So how do you answer that question? Well, we start with getting the virus, and we start with... um, something called just simple sequence analysis. So one of the great things about this outbreak is that um, the sequences of the virus, its genome, uh, were very were available very early on and continue to be updated and put out there. Um, and what we can do is we can scan those sequences. We can look for signatures that might give us hints as to why this virus is replicating in humans better. And then go into the laboratory and take the virus apart and really determine um, which of those factors is driving efficient virus replication and presumably then disease. So you might try to create like an animal model or some other model of the virus and play around with the virus to see whether you can understand what 
part of the virus, maybe making it transmit between humans, for example? Yeah, animal models are one step. Uh, my laboratory is also interested in replication in the upper respiratory tract. So we have um, a model system using human nasal epithelial cells. See, like cell culture? Like cell culture. I see. And um, what it is, is a, it's, a, it's a model of the upper respiratory tract that really um, is cells that look very much like your nasal tract does to the virus. And so what we try to study is those early stages of virus infection. When you first get exposed to a virus, what's the virus doing? And then it also turns out that the virus that's present in your nasal tract um, may be the virus that's actually transmitting from person to person. So we then study at the end of the infection what the virus is doing in these tissues as um, a way to study the virus that's being transmitted from person to person. And what about the coronavirus right now is of greatest interest to you? The efficient spread from person to person and how that might be linked with the mild symptoms that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, init- the original SARS outbreak was very distinctive in the fact that spread from person to person was a little bit more difficult for that virus to make, and that virus caused much more severe disease when it infected someone. This COVID-19 is a little different. It's causing more mild disease, and it seems to be spreading more efficiently. So to us, that suggests that something about its interaction with the upper respiratory tract is very different. And understanding what that is might give us insights in terms of how this virus is spreading. And more importantly, it might give us some insights that'll help us inform how to deal with future emerging in respiratory infections by giving us more insights as to how these viruses can overcome these barriers. Got it. Now, you mentioned uh, sequencing the virus. And I've been reading about how the virus in one place is related to the virus in another place, and it suggests, you know, different aspects of uh, transmission, whether they were the same uh, outbreak, strain, for example. Can you talk a little bit about what we can learn by sequencing the virus in different parts of the world? So first of all, um, the sequencing efforts right now allow us a tremendously powerful tool to trace who has been infected from which individual. So viruses mutate at a relatively high rate, and those mutations allow you to do two things. Uh, Most importantly, during an emerging outbreak, is that it allows you to trace the people who have transmitted the virus to other people. For instance, if you have a case, like the case in, in Washington State, of someone coming in with an infection, if you see a case a few weeks later and the sequence is almost identical to that first person, you can assume that it was that person that seeded the infection. And so you can follow these, these, uh, these lines of transmission so you can understand really how the virus is moving through the community. Do you think it's possible that some of these mutations will make the virus either more virulent or less virulent, meaning more dangerous to people or less dangerous to people? Yeah, and that's the second thing that these sequences allow us to do. You know, while this virus, when it jumps into humans, has been good at doing some things, Um, clearly these mutations that occur randomly could also select for variants that change the way the virus is replicating. And presumably, uh, any mutations that occur that allow this virus to interact better with humans and human cells and human proteins Mm -hmm. might increase the ability of this virus to replicate. So we're now really following some of the sequence data that's going out there with an eye on looking for mutations that might be telling us that this virus is adapting to humans and becoming better um, at dealing with this new host. Now, um, talk to me for a second about how virologists like you collaborate with other virologists around the world on a challenge like this that's facing humanity. Yeah, so we, um, the virology community has really come together. Um, I sit on two weekly conferences, teleconferences, where 
upwards of 50 virologists get together and freely exchange what's going on in their laboratories. And they're from the United States? All or? over the world. Okay. All over the world. Um, they give us weekly progress reports in terms of who's doing what, what results they're seeing. We just had a talk earlier today where they gave us some hints about how to grow the virus better uh, so that we can have more of this so we can work with. Um, so the virology community has really come together to try to exchange information and to move forward as fast as possible on experiments that might really impact the way we handle and treat COVID-19 infected individuals. Great. Are there any particular fears that you have about this virus and how it you know, how it might be behaving or are you, how do you think about that? Let's just say that a lot of us have different kinds of fears. Yeah. You know, what does a virologist think about? I mean, maybe your, your training, your understanding allows you to temper that, but how do you think about that question of just how afraid people should be? Yeah. The big place that I'm thinking a lot about now is, um, it involves the severity of the disease and the case fatality rate. So, it's clear that um, individuals, particularly over the age of 60, are very much susceptible to severe disease as well as to death after infection. Most other individuals seem to have a more mild disease. So the overall case fatality rate seems to be dropping. Mm -hmm. But I worry that we have to balance that with the fact that this is a new virus in the human population. Mm -hmm. We have no vaccines, no antivirals, and importantly, no pre-existing immunity to the virus. Therefore, a much larger portion of the population, perhaps all of us, are susceptible to infection. And if I compare this to influenza, mm -hmm. in any one given year, influenza, well, this year the influenza has killed 18,000 people in the United States. That's with vaccines, mm -hmm. with antivirals, and with some percent of the population not being susceptible to infection. Mm -hmm. So my real fear is, is trying to understand right. where this is going to settle in terms of large numbers of cases versus right. severe disease cases. And so you're thinking even if it's relatively unlikely to kill an individual, that it could kill a lot of people nonetheless in a Be population. Because right. of the sheer number of cases that could potentially result from this infection. And that, that's what makes it such an urgent issue to, to fight. You mentioned something that I'm curious your perspective as a virologist, that it seems to be um, causing more harm to older individuals. Does that tell you anything about the virus? Does it look like other viruses? Is there you know, any, any um, insight you have about that finding? We, we did a, a webcast. A lot of people were asking why um, are kids not seeming to get sick. Does, does, that have, does that ring any bells for you? How do you think about that? Yeah, so that's, that's very similar to some of the outcomes that we see with um, two other coronaviruses, the original SARS coronavirus and another coronavirus, MERS, that has been periodically infecting individuals. Um, there's been a lot of work in animal models showing that animals that are older um, have a reduced um, immune response to infection. Hmm. And they also may have more of what we call an inflammatory response, meaning your body is generating responses that um, are designed to stimulate your immune system, but those stimulations aren't controlled very well yeah. and can end up causing more harm than, than just controlling the infection. I see. And so it, it's possible that it's something about coronaviruses and it's something about the way that coronavirus interacts with the immune system that may be explaining some of these uh, 
these differences that are seen. Yeah, that's our working hypothesis right now. And like I said, it's been something that other coronaviruses have also done. So um, it's an area that, that is uh, of high priority of research because, again, that's the population that's most susceptible to severe disease. And so it really is the population that we're trying to focus on getting better treatment regimens for. So I asked you about your fears. Um, I'm curious what gives you some hope about our ability to respond well in this situation. And uh, you mentioned that there's good scientific collaboration, but I wonder in either that or is there there's some other aspect of the data that's coming out that makes you think this is something that will be manageable. Yeah, well, you know, while there have been some hiccups with the testing for the virus here in the U.S., it seems like that's rolling out um, very quickly and now very extensively. And I think that um, all the tools that are coming to bear to help track this infection are really working at an amazingly efficient level right now. And so being able to monitor, identify cases, and then put in public health measures to limit the spread is something that I still believe uh, can make a very big impact in terms of limiting disease, particularly here in the United States. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.